Hey there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a professional who wants to have a greater impact in the lives of children and families by building resilience, this podcast is for you. Join us to become a trauma-informed champion by nurturing connections through relational health to help kids and families thrive. Every time you join me, you'll hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use every day. Hey friends, it's Dr. Amy, and we are recording an end of the month podcast, but also a special gem for all of you regarding one of our free downloads that are available through our website at www.dramyllc.com forward slash freebies. I thought that since we are kind of gently transitioning from January, where our theme on the podcast was mainly connecting with ourselves and kind of recentering um, to February, which we'll be talking about connecting with teens, that I would go over with some of you one of the biggest questions I get asked, which are kind of what are my guiding principles in working with kids and families? What are things that I kind of go back to often, the things that ground me, the things that are really what I would call core assumptions in my work with children and families, whether I'm teaching and training other people to work with kids and families or um, doing it myself to be honest. So I thought we would just go through some of these guiding principles together so that you have a digital version, which is available through our website, or you can go back to this training anytime you want to. Um, If you are listening during the month of January, um, like I said, we are moving from uh, connecting with ourselves to connecting with teens. If you're listening another time, I'm glad you're here. There is so much available on this podcast about how to be a connected champion, how to be trauma-informed, how to work with kids and families and adults in a way that's both compassionate, but also helps heal trauma through connected relationships. What we're going to go over today is my top 10 guiding principles in working with kids and families. This is really a gem. It is the cornerstone of my work. Whenever I'm doing work directly with kids or training other people to work with kids and families, these are the guiding principles that I go back to over and over and over. So I'm so excited to share them with you today. Um, Let's see, what else is going on in my world? Um, A couple of really fun things this last week. First of all, I was asked to be the National Association for Head Starts keynote speaker It's going to be in April of 2024, and it's right here in my backyard. So if you don't know, I live just outside of Portland, Oregon, and the National Head Start Association National Conference is going to take place in Portland, Oregon this spring. So if you are in early childhood in any capacity, I hope you're coming to the National Head Start Association Conference, and you'll get to see me. I'm going to talk about groundbreaking research around adverse childhood experiences and positive childhood experiences and how every single adult in the life of a child can make an impact, a profound impact on their life. Um, Also just hanging out, doing trainings around our state and across our country. I got back from a training in Arizona for teachers at an incredible school down there learning about how to be a trauma-informed school system. And I recently got back from my home state of Iowa, where I grew up, and I had the opportunity to meet with people there from the Iowa Child Abuse Assessment Centers, which was amazing. What an incredible group of people. 
And then more recently, I've been consulting with some head starts and healthcare systems around the state of Oregon. I have some Connected Collabs that are starting in February. If you aren't aware of what Connected Collabs are, I hope you take a second to check them out. You can go to our website and look up Connected Collabs. Um, but in February, I have a huge group of primary care health providers from a federally qualified health center who are joining us. And we are really excited to start helping to support them prevent burnout and overwhelm and um, begin talking in the learning collaboratives about boundaries in January and then moving into some work around anxiety. So anyway, all of the good stuff about Connected Collabs are, is on our website and we're starting some really cool Connected Collabs in February. Um, I've been doing some trauma-informed workshops in various parts of the country. And then uh, this last couple of weeks, there was an announcement that my book is now available for pre-order. So uh, the book that I co-authored with Dr. RJ Gillespie will be available um, in, I think, June it is, but it's available for pre-order now. It's called Trauma-Informed Pediatric Practices, Creating a Resilience-Based Roadmap for Early Relational Health. And it's incredible, to be honest. Um, seeing that the book is there and my name is on the cover has been nothing short of humbling. Um, but I have to admit that most of the people in my life are much more impressed that it's on Amazon than they are about anything else. Because, um, yeah, you can go on Amazon, type in trauma-informed pediatrics, and you'll find my book right there. So I'll put it in the link as well. At any rate, let's go on to talking about these 10 guiding principles. So often when people ask me what grounds me in my work, I talk about the importance of, you know, unconditional love and connection, but I thought I would take a minute and I just talk about some of these core assumptions in my work, and I'm going to break them down for you today. So number one um, is that parents do well and caregivers do well when they can. I know that sometimes even as you're thinking about parents and caregivers, you're like, are you sure, Dr. Amy, like all of the parents and caregivers are doing the best they can? And my answer to that is yes. Um, you know, if you're working with a parent or a caregiver that's angry or resistant or defended or hard to get in touch with or, you know, just hard to engage in any capacity, just know that, you know, parents only do as well as how they learn to be parents, right? When we think about social learning theory, when we think about, you know, how we were taught to parent, we parent both because of and in spite of how we were parented. And so I truly believe, you know, in my 25 years in working with families, that parents and caregivers are doing the very best they can with the knowledge and resources that they have at their fingertips. And knowledge and resources might come from intergenerational trauma, it might come from incredible models, but we don't know until we begin working with parents in terms of what the skills are and what their context is, what things they've been taught through their culture, through their family of origin, for better or for worse. And so we really want to ask parents and caregivers where they get their information about parenting. I often ask, like, who do you follow? Do you follow anybody on social media? Do you get guidance? Are you part of a group? Um, are you part of a, an organization where you gain information about parenting or caregiving? I want to know all of those things and be really curious about how parents are learning or have learned about parenting so that we can have really meaningful conversations that feel non-judgmental and that also encourage them to know that I believe 
or if you're a professional, you believe that they're doing the very best they can. <clears throat> so that's number one. Parents do well when they can. Number two, kids do well when they can. Now, this comes from the work of Stuart Ablon um, through collaborative problem-solving models. And basically, the tenant is if a child is not doing well, behaving well, they're acting out or they're acting in right through aggression or refusal or withdrawal, there's something else going on. And what we really have to be good at is becoming detectives in terms of what's behind the behavior, right? What's beyond the behavior. And so those of you that have done trainings and workshops with me will know that we kind of walk through what we call the clarity model when we're trying to figure out what else might be going on, what's behind the behavior. Um, but as my friend Robin often says, safe, regulated kids will do well. And so when kids are what we would consider misbehaving, or we might call it attention seeking, even though I do a lot of reframing of those types of comments during um, our workshops when we work together, you know, kids are just looking for connection. They're trying to communicate either an unmet need or a feeling that's there. And sometimes behavior is the only way of doing it. So the next time you're working with kids and you're noticing a behavior that's either really complex or not very endearing, to be honest, I wonder if you could just put on a, a, a lens of curiosity for just a moment and ask yourself, what else might be going on that would be driving this behavior? What is this child trying to communicate and or what need is it that they're trying to get met that isn't being met? So that's number two. Kids do well when they can. Number three, taking a developmental lens is paramount. Um, if I've learned nothing else in the field of psychology, I learned from one of my very first mentors, Dr. Myrtle Scott in graduate school, that we have to look at everything through a developmental lens. And so first and foremost, as a trauma-informed psychologist, I am a developmentalist. So when someone comes to me and they're wanting to consult with me about a child or a family or their behavior, one of the first things I ask is, how old is this child and is the behavior that they're engaging in developmentally appropriate? And then I also want to see like, what is the developmental age that they're presenting with, right? So a child on paper, it might say that they're four years old chronologically, but they might be acting like a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And certainly we're seeing a lot of that right now in the world. I'm hearing this from pediatricians, from family practitioners, from early Head Start and Head Start teachers, from K-12 teachers, that behaviors are more complex than we've ever seen it. Well, you have to remember, we've gone through a period of isolation during the pandemic, so kids weren't with those people and adults and in environments where they had safe, stable, nurturing connections all the time, and they didn't have all of the scaffolding of socially, emotionally appropriate skill building, and so they may look delayed. And the same is true for um, kids with developmental delays or kids that are um, not developing in a neurotypical fashion. So we really want to take a developmental lens and not necessarily just respond to the chronological age. Like I get it when 15 year olds are acting like toddler behavior or like 10 year old behavior, we want to kind of condescend them and infantilize them. But in fact, we just want to respond to the developmental needs that's there. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they're feeling overwhelmed in some capacity. But if we can respond to the developmental presentation versus the chronological age, then we will feel a lot less frustrated. Because if you are a parent or a caregiver or a professional, and you're looking at a kid and you're thinking like, they're 13. Why aren't they acting 13? 
you're going to be frustrated and they're going to be frustrated. Instead, if we just respond to the emotion that's behind it or the need or the behavior that, that, that they're using to communicate the unmet need, we will feel so much more successful. So that's the third thing. Always take a developmental lens. The fourth thing when I'm working with kids and families is that I'm always encouraging presence over perfection. So I want to reassure any of you that are parents or caregivers out there that I have never met a perfect parent. And certainly you do not need to be a perfect parent to create resilient children that know how to overcome adversity and hardship. Kids don't require perfect parents, but what they do need deeply is nurturing and connection. And so we really want to show up on a consistent basis for kids. There's a fabulous book by um, Tina Payne Bryson, and she talks about the importance of just showing up. And so you'll hear me when you get trained in workshops about this concept of special time. Sometimes some of you call it connection time or time-ins, but really making sure that kids have access to quality time with caring, loving adults where we are free from phones and free from distractions and all of those types of things and really focusing on the relationship, really focusing on connection. And that it's not tied to anything else. It's not a reward and it can't be used as a punishment, right? We really want to just let our kids know that there's time that they get with us on a regular basis, no matter what. So that's number four, really focusing on presence over perfection. And that relates really closely to the fifth cornerstone of the work that I do, which is we want to focus on repairs and know that ruptures are bound to happen. So, you know, just like I said before about kids needing presence over perfection, there are going to be times where we just mess up as adults in their lives. And I want you to think how many of you grew up in households where adults never apologized where they never took accountability for their actions. Well, I want you to shift that. That is an incredible way that we can heal intergenerational harm, where we can heal really um, destructive practices by instead focusing on how do we repair when a rupture happens. Ruptures are bound to happen. I've been doing this work for over 20 years, almost 25 years now. I mess up parenting every day. I say things I wish I wouldn't. I say things to my kids that are unnecessary or I make a threat or give a punishment that just isn't appropriate for them or I say regrettable things when I'm angry, here's the thing. Please know that ruptures in families are a normal part of relationships. Uh, we're going to disagree. We're going to say regrettable things. What's important is focusing on the repair. Going to your child and creating a narrative around the behavior that happened, what you think is regrettable, and, and also asking for a fresh start. So for those of you that have been trained in Cards for Connection, there are little repair scripts on several of our Cards for Connection because some of us have never learned how to repair. Let me give you a quick little nugget there, a little script. If I yelled at my child, I don't care what age they are, um, that's a rupture. That's scary because I'm an adult and I have power. <clears throat> what I want to do is be able to circle back to them and provide a repair through a narrative. So I might say something like, you know, hey, Sophia, uh, earlier today, I was frustrated and I raised my voice and I said some things that I wish I wouldn't have. That's not okay. 
I bet that felt kind of scary to you, or maybe you felt overwhelmed, or I might even ask her to tell me if she's old enough, how it did make her feel when I yelled. And then I'm going to say, I really want to try again. I can't promise that I'll never lose my, lose my temper again, but I can let you know that I, I have regret over that. And I'm sorry. And I take accountability because I'm the adult and I really want to be able to have conversations with you that don't feel scary and overwhelming. Can we try again? Ah, oh, man. Even saying that, one, I recognize how hard it is for us as adults sometimes to say that. And two, it also just like makes my heart feel, I don't know, a little bit safer, softer. And, and I can't imagine how that must feel in turn for a child as well. So really focusing on repairs. The next thing, uh, number six, is focusing on what we call neurobiology and safety. So you know, so many of us that work in the world of trauma really try to emphasize to professionals and caregivers um, and any really anyone who will listen to us how incredibly protective our brains are. And so anytime we can focus and talk to parents and caregivers about our brains and how our brains behave and how they keep us safe and how they receive messages... It just helps us understand more globally what's happening with kids a little bit better and adults too, for that matter. I'll give you an example here. And, and obviously these are topics that we dive deeply into in some of our learning collaboratives and through the Cards for Connection. But if you think about how our brain is set up for survival, right? If we're in a state of fight or flight, we're not going to be able to learn. And so if I've had a horrible day at work and I'm just in my feeling part of my brain, and I'm all feelings and overwhelm, and then somebody wants me, wants my attention or wants me to solve a problem or wants to have a conversation, I'm probably not going to be available for that. And the same is true for our kids. If they're in a state of distress, if they're um, angry because of how school went, if they're feeling hurt or sad or scared in some capacity, and then we're trying to talk to them or teach them a lesson, or we want them to tell us what they did wrong or what the consequence might be, their brain is not in a learning state. And so anytime we can remind ourselves about how our brains work, both in a protective mechanism, but also how we learn, then we get a lot more keen about realizing when our brains are online and ready to learn, and when our brains are offline and not ready to learn. So the whole point of focusing on neurobiology and safety is knowing that all of us are programmed to search for safety. We all want to engage in what we call a regulated way, which means we feel safe both physically and emotionally. And it goes back to the our prior tenants, right? Kids do well when they can. And so if they're not doing well, it's probably because they don't have some form of safety and it's their brain that's trying to help them figure that out and kind of assess the environment and see when it feels safe again. Um, so that kind of leads us to the next point about one of the ways we can create felt safety, which is through unconditional love. You know, probably of all 10 of these things that I'm talking about today, unconditional love is one of the most important things we can provide a child. And if you're a professional working with a family, you know, we can get stuck for a long time talking to families and caregivers about this concept of unconditional love because so many of us didn't experience unconditional love. So many of us experienced 
you know, if you do this, then I'm pulling my relationship away from you. Or if you do that, you know, no son of mine would ever do that. Or no daughter of mine would disappoint in that way. And we kind of confuse relationship with behavior. One of the first things I try to help caregivers and parents untangle as a professional is relationship from behavior. And what I say very matter-of-factly is kids are meant to do dumb stuff sometimes. In fact, it's developmentally appropriate, right? They're supposed to want to be autonomous, to talk back, to be independent, to take risks, to be great problem solvers sometimes and horrible problem solvers other times. And that so many of their behaviors that we might consider acting out in some capacity are just developmentally appropriate behaviors. When my kids talk back to me, when they refuse to do something, when they're riskier than I would like to be with them, their behavior, it's because their brains are growing and developing. What I never want to do and what I try to teach parents and caregivers and professionals that work with them is I never want to, as a form of punishment, take away the relationship. So of course there are natural consequences. Natural consequences are a part of life. If you spill all the blocks and they haven't been picked up, then the natural consequence is we have to waste a little bit of our time now cleaning up the blocks because we're going to do that before we move on to the next activity. But a natural consequence for not picking up the blocks isn't to not get tucked in at night or not get a book read to you or not have the attention and love of a caregiver. So in other words, kids are supposed to do stuff that is hard and challenging because they're learning and it's developmentally appropriate. And it's our job as the adults and the adults who teach other adults to love them no matter what. It really is what creates a sense of safety and secure attachment in relationships. So that is item number seven. Kids require unconditional love to flourish. Um, the next thing, and uh, this is kind of under the core assumption of working with kids and families that as professionals, we can use ourselves as examples. So we call this use of self. And what that means is that there are sometimes we're going to humanize ourselves to provide greater empathy or validation. So if you can partner with a parent or caregiver versus talking down to a parent or caregiver, in other words, having alignment with versus power over this feeling of like, I know better than you, I'm teaching you, instead of tell me more, or help me understand how you were raised or what your family of origin was like, or what your goal was in the discipline that you chose in that moment. Just as a side note, a reminder there is that discipline means to teach. But we want to be really curious with parents about what discipline has meant to them. So when we use ourselves as professionals in a humanizing way. You know, when I tell parents, yeah, I've had all the training in the world and I mess up every day with parent with parenting. There are so many parents and professionals that are like, oh, thank goodness. If Dr. Amy messes up, then certainly I can mess up sometimes too. So we really want to share stories, offer empathy. And it doesn't mean we're oversharing information about ourselves or our lives, but what we're doing is we're validating common human experiences that many of us go through as parents. And it allows a safe space for another parent or caregiver to open up and feel safe, seen, and heard. All right, that's number eight. Number nine, what we know is that resilience reduces the effects of stress and the effects of trauma. So there are actually tools that we can teach parents like special time or time ins 
or how to do appropriate repairs versus ruptures that will actually create more strength and resilience for their children and mitigate the effects of stress and trauma. Now, I want to just take a little side note here and make sure we define resilience. Resilience is the ability to overcome challenges and hardships and to be strengthened by difficult events versus um, overwhelmed or taken down by them. But there's a couple of caveats here. We're not all born resilient. We're all born with the capacity to be resilient. And we learn that through connected relationships. So resilience is really about relational health and it's really about connected relationships. We can teach tools to parents and caregivers that can help them be more connected and therefore help their children be more resilient, but it's happening in relationships. And it happens over time. We're not just resilient and then we're done with it and we're always resilient. And there are other times when we're more resilient than others because of other things that are happening or going on in our lives. But the bottom line is this, when we do work with parents and caregivers and we help them learn tools that build that connected relationship, that relational health that ultimately then builds resilience, we are helping to mitigate stress and harm. So that's number nine teaching strength-based relational resilience skills. And that leads us to our final point, which is number 10, that connection is really the greatest building block to resilience. I see this in every capacity, in every sphere, in every organization and system that I work with. When kids and families feel seen, when they feel connected with a teacher, with a pediatrician, with a family practice doc, with a nurse home visitor, um, with a specials teacher, with a family advocate, whomever that case may be, a therapist, a, a mental health professional, when they feel safe, seen, and heard in relationships, they are building greater connection in their lives. And those building blocks are exactly what create positive experiences in their life, positive childhood experiences, which are essentially the building blocks for health, for long-term health. And at some point, um, if you've taken trainings or other workshops with me, you learn a lot about adverse childhood experiences. And so much of the research that's coming out now is showing us that even if we've had childhoods where we've experienced a great deal of adversity, we can still experience positive experiences excuse me, positive experiences through relational health and connection that can mitigate the effects of that trauma in our lives. So, you know, really my, my life's work has been in creating resilience interventions that are trauma-informed and research-based that strengthen and help families really grow. But before we can do any of that teaching, any of that work, we really have to ascribe to these 10 guiding principles. And so in short form, here are the 10 guiding principles or the gems that are really cornerstone to the work that I do and how I teach parents and how I teach professionals who work with families. Number one, parents do well when they can. Number two, kids do well when they can. Number three, we're always going to look through the lens of development. Number four, we're going to seek presence over perfection. Number five, we're going to learn how to do repairs really well, knowing that ruptures will happen. Number six, we're going to focus on neurobiology and how incredibly protective and amazing our brains are. 
Number seven, we're going to teach and require unconditional love to be met for children. Number eight, we're going to use ourselves as professionals to be fully human, to share, to guide, and to teach stories. Number nine, we're going to recognize that resilience mitigates stress and trauma and that we can teach resilience-based skills through relational health and connection. And finally, we're going to look at those building blocks of connection that will ultimately lead to greater health for kids and families. So if you want this guide that has all of this information about the 10 guiding principles for working with kids and families, you can go to my website, www.dramyllc.com forward slash freebies. That guiding principles worksheet is in there with reminders for all of this. You can kind of use it for you as well for that North Star that you're always looking towards. There's also tons of other resources on my webpage in terms of how we manage burnout, um, establishing boundaries as professionals, and a slew of other incredible free resources on our website. If you're interested in learning more about some of the things I mentioned, like our learning collaboratives called the Connected Collabs, or our book that's coming out soon, or this deep dive into meaningful relational health called Cards for Connection. I can't wait to hear from you. Please reach out to me or my team. You can reach us at info at dramyllc.com. I will put everything in the show notes. But that's it for now, friends. I hope this felt really helpful. I hope that if you're here, you got some gems that you can take into your work tomorrow. And finally, I want to stress to you what I just stressed in terms of how we teach kids and families, and that is focus on presence, focus on that versus being perfect. Um, Being our whole human selves is really what we need more of in this world. So thanks so much for doing this work with me. I'll see you soon. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing here, please download my free resource called 10 Guiding Principles to Nurture Connection and Help Children and Families Thrive. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing yours because your humanity will heal others. Bye for now.